0: everyone. I'm Mike Urbans, and welcome to It's Your Water. We're glad you found us. Today's guest is Bill Koble from the Resintech Company. Resintech is a resin manufacturing company in Camden, New Jersey. Bill is a longtime colleague of mine. We've both been in the industry a good amount of time. Both have a lot of fun stories about the industry. So if you see us at a with our elbows bent at the bar, uh, come on over. We got some good stories. But uh, welcome, Bill.
1: Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. How'd you get your start in the industry? I kind of know, but for all our people out there.
1: Oh, it's uh, it's kind of an odd story. Not not odd, I suppose, but uh, I'd actually uh, majored in chemistry in college, and I had this great plan in my mind. I was going to be a PhD research scientist, and then I spent a couple of summers interning doing research, and I realized how much I disliked it. So... But once you get so far into a degree like that, you can't exactly change to something else. So I said, you know what? Let me see what's out there for me. And I ended up going to work for the Nelson Corporation in Norton, Ohio in 1997. So we're going on close to 26 years in the business. Mm-hmm. And Dave and I went to the same school. Dave Nelson, who's one of the uh, the owner. Yeah, I forgot Went to the about same that. school, yeah. And then when I work there the Tech sales rep was Larry Gottlieb and Larry and I befriended very quickly and even when I left Nelson and went to work in the chemical side of uh, water treatment Larry and I stayed in touch and then I started working at Tech in 2000 so that's kind of my career path
0: there you go so 2000 boy they were just they were out of a garage back then
1: yeah I mean it was very different than we are today, of course. Oh, yeah. You know, our sales meetings used to just be five guys in a house sitting around a kitchen table, you know, and now there's, you know, 50 people at this thing, right? So yeah, we've t- come a long way in those uh, 20 plus years I've been there.
0: But it's still family, you know? I mean, it's still, yep. you got to still have the Gottliebs. So it's still a family business and you have them to answer to and, and yep. not board members and stuffy safety meetings and and crazy stuff. I mean.
1: Oh, for sure. And they're great to work for. I love working for both of them. You know, this is Jeff and Larry at this point. Mike's been retired from the business for a bit now,
0: but yeah. uh, yeah,
1: yeah, they're great people. They care about their employees. They care about their customers. It's it's been a great great experience working for them.
0: So you've been there since two thousand. So if I yeah, know 23 me, and twenty three years in May coming up here. See, it's very easy. You have easy math. I started in nineteen eighty six, so it'll be <laughs> right. like forty years or something. Yeah, you're
1: yeah. carrying you're carrying ones and stuff.
0: Yeah, <laughs> my
1: gazintas. Kids don't even learn that anymore. I'm not doing that with my children. Like, what is this? Carry the one. Carry the one.
0: Well, I have. I get a lot of resin questions. That's why I brought you in here because I do a little bit of everything, and I've listed probably the most frequent ion exchange resin. You know, of course, for our listeners, the most frequent questions that they give me, and first one is. How long is it going to last? And it's such right. an open-ended question, sure. cation and anion. And, but we'll start with cation and move into anion. And what are the major life influences on uh, cation? It'll kill it.
1: Yep, yep. And we do need to look at them separately. The, yes. The degradation of cation and anion are, are quite different. So let's start with cation, right? So cation resin, you know, we have the cross-linking, right? That's what holds the bead together it's when that crosslinking starts breaking down is when the resin doesn't quite work as well anymore, right? We know this, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, chlorine impacts it, but, you know, any oxidant can impact it. So whether it's chlorine, whether it's chloramine, whether it's, you know, peroxide, ozone, you name it, permanganate, they're all oxidants. But the one oxidant that we don't always talk about either is oxygen. So, I mean, at the end of the day, all oxidants are a oxygen donor right? To an oxidation process. Mm -hmm. So you can have, obviously, if you have those in the water, they're going to shorten the life of the resin. But when you have oxygen in the presence of other things, it can also speed up degradation. So if you have metals present, right? Like iron, right? Very common application, right? Iron removal and softeners that will speed things up. Another uh, factor is heat. So we deal on, right, those those hot water applications, maybe a condensate polishing. You know, heat also speeds up the degradation process. Now, some of those yeah. condensate applications have iron as well. So you have this combination of oxygen, iron, and heat.
0: Double, right? triple, or triple deadly. Yeah,
1: the triple, yeah, exactly. Or your uh, typical potable water app. Okay, I got iron and, and chlorine, right? So you start bringing the multiple factors together, you're going to start breaking down that cross-linking. So if you had none of those factors in theory, right, this is on paper, right? Yeah, I right. mean, a yeah. softening resin could last 20 plus years, right? And and I've heard those stories like, oh, I've had that resin in there for 20 years. I'm like, wow, I can't believe it, right? You, mm-hmm. This stuff looks like it the day you put it in there. But if you dig down in it, the water chemistry and the environment was pretty darn clean for them,
2: Very, right? Yeah.
1: And then you have those applications. All this stuff lasted six months. And it's like, well, you you hit the triple whammy. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're Iron oxidation, you know,
0: three parts per million level. of chlorine or chloramine. Yeah. And one point you made about the cation and uh, the ultimate lifespan, but doesn't the cation bead swell when it gets uh, yes. brined and then it contracts and it swells and it contracts? I mean, uh, microscopically. So-
1: yeah, very, very low amounts. But when you start breaking the crosslinking down, the resin swells. So then your capacity goes down. Because when you swell a resin bead, you're changing the volume. And when we look at the capacity of a resin, it's usually done on a volumetric basis. So it starts going down. But this is what really happens. Those functional groups and selectivity, right? We talk about these big words, right? Mm-hmm. Where the functional groups, when they're closer together... They're more selective. The further apart they get from one another, the less selective they become. So when you have a higher cross-linked resin, right, like a 10% or a macro porous version, which are anywhere from 12 to 15, they have very high cross-linking. Those functional groups are really close together. Therefore, their selectivity is higher. When you have a lower cross-linked resin, you know, and there's plenty of 7% resin out there, but as that de links it becomes 4%, 5%. Pick a number, Mm -hmm. right? What's really happening is the functional groups are getting further and further apart. As they start spreading apart, the selectivity goes down. Why does that matter? Well, now it can't remove it. as The hardness is efficiently, Mm -hmm. right? You're getting higher leakages. Every time you regenerate, no matter how much salt you throw at it, you can't recover more capacity. Because remember, capacity and leakage are kind of linked together, right? Mm -hmm. You have an endpoint. You say, hey, I want to reach... One part per million of total hardness. Well, all of a sudden you're hitting one part per million within five minutes of putting it back online. That resin is just not capable of getting to that level anymore because those functional groups are just too far apart from one another. Yeah. I think that's the simplest way to look at it. I mean, chemistry wise, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. When I'm explaining it to people, that's kind of how I explain it to them, so they have a better understanding of what's actually happening.
0: Yeah, and that's, and we'll, we're we're going to address cross-linking in, in a little bit, and how the importance of this internal structure of resin called cl- cross-linking, and how important it is to resin life. And um, but what about uh, anine? Anine seems to be a lot weaker. Right
1: Yeah, anion's different. The degradation mechanism or the way it loses its umph or capacity or lifetime, these same type factors, they don't attack the, the crosslinking. What they actually do is attacks the functional group itself.
2: Hmm.
1: So in certain cases, it'll just remove it from the resin. Sometimes it changes the functional group on the resin. So a lot of the anion resins we use for potable water, are you know, strong base, right? We're using a strong base anion. A lot of them are type 1s. Sometimes they're type 2s. There are different types. so I won't get into that
2: just yeah, now. yeah.
1: But what ends up happening is the chlorine attacks that functional group. And in the case of a type 1, it will just literally pop it right off. <laughs> I mean, it just goes away.
2: That's it weird. just
1: disappears forever. And certain functional groups, like a type 2, you actually convert it from a strong base to a weak base functional group. Hmm. And here's a little, you know, and I'm sure you know this, but for the listener, Mm -hmm. if you have chlorine in the water and you apply it to an anion resin, chlorine in water is actually hypochlorous acid and, you know, hypochlorite, right? Bleach is sodium hypochlorite. Mm -hmm. You can buy calcium hypochlorite tablets or whatever the hypochlorite is an anion that is more selective than the anion resin you're using for exchange what ends up happening is the anion resin actually removes the chlorine from the water ionically Hmm. so you're attaching it that way now it will regenerate off it does behave like an ion but the resin's pulling it right in right so if you have any chlorine in the water it gets pulled right in Permanganate's the same same situation. Permanganate will get exchanged onto the functional group itself. Things like ozone, peroxide, chloramines, they don't really behave that way. Hmm. But those other two specifically, bleach and permanganate, will actually attach to the resin.
0: Wow. I never thought of that, I, honestly. I mean, uh, that's why I do these podcasts. I, yeah. we, we all learn. So,
1: that. like, if you're doing a school, for example... And you have to maintain a residual of disinfection mm-hmm. throughout the entire system. Yeah. If you put an anion-based resin in there, whether it's for uranium removal or maybe you're using one of the hybrid arsenic removal media,s mm-hmm. um, something like that, it goes through an anion. It will get removed. You will, they will you will have to re inject chlorine after that resin. There's no way to get around it. Right. Now, eventually it'll fill up and kind of pass it down the road, but it's going to take a really, really long time.
0: That's why, why I have to factor that in when you could just inject
1: afterwards. So, yeah, exactly. And
0: plus, you should be doing that anyway, obvious, for obvious yep. reasons what we're talking about. Um, yeah,
1: but in the end, cation gets attacked by cross-linking destruction. Anion gets attacked at functional group destruction. Yeah. So even though an and anion resins are, like you said, are much more fragile. So they can degrade much quicker, you know, even under oxidative environment like a cation resin, you still might get three, four, five years. Hmm. You know, anion might only last one or two years under hmm. the same conditions. So they can vary pretty heavily.
0: Jeez, it's like the cation gets rickets and the 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 anion <laughs> gets is uh neutered.
1: Yes, correct. <laughs> now, you can still break down cross-linking on it, and I've seen this a lot on organic scavengers or tannin removal situations, because those resonances that we use for those applications are fragile to begin with. So basically, the like a bleach for or a chlorine, for example, you know, yeah, it goes after the functional groups, but then it starts going after the cross-linking at the same time. Yeah,
0: so, double whammy.
1: It's uh Oh, you should see some of these samples. We, I mean, they're pulverized. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing how bad they get.
0: Lesson here, put a carbon bed before your anion and cation.
1: Absolutely.
0: So moving on, yep. You know, because we got a lot to cover. It's uh, the We're just trying to give you pearls of wisdom here, everybody. Um, yeah, sorry, guys. I yeah. talk a lot. Yeah, <laughs> no. What is a big fallant of, uh, of ion exchange resin? Oh, sure, sure. That we would see well, commonly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious one, and I'm going to circle back to it, is iron. Yeah. So we'll come back to iron. Iron's mm-hmm. probably a, the number one thing I see foul cation resin. Mm-hmm. But in general, we deal with quite a bit of suspended solids fouling. Mm-hmm. So this is a water that has particulate in it going through the resin. Uh-huh. And if it's not removed ahead of time, it can actually kind of stick to the resin and then build a layer of, for a lack of a better description, mud or crud or dirt in the resin itself, mm-hmm. and there's a reason for that. So, in chemistry, like chemical water treatment, like uh, in wastewater treatment, mm-hmm. for example, or even clarification applications, you know, we've heard the term coagulant and flocculant, right? Mm-hmm. Coagulants and flocculants are polymers or chemicals that exhibit charge. And their whole purpose is to neutralize charge of the particle in the water to create a bigger solid that then settles, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're basically taking little itty-bitty particles and we're sticking them together to make big particles so they settle out in a clarifier. Okay. That's really what that chemistry does. Right. Well, the, the chemistry that's used for that a lot of times are charged polymers. Uh-huh. And they can have cationic or anionic charges. And that's what attracts the dirt and muck to it so that it settles. Well, guess what ion exchange resin is?
2: <laughs> anion it's a big
1: charged particle, <laughs> right? So cation resin is actually a big charged anion, where anion resin is actually a big charged cation piece mm. of plastic. It attracts and the, these particles can stick to it and then therefore they you know you got to backwash them out sometimes you can't if the particles get too big or they're too well stuck to the resins right so the lesson there if you want to help prevent physical fouling or suspended solids fouling we really need to get that stuff removed ahead of time gotcha. right in the case of anion resin you can get organics fouling so naturally occurring organic matter things like tannins right organic humic fulvic acids, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. In fact, the tannin resin is really trying to control a fouling mechanism. So they're designed to release the organics better, but that's still a fouling mechanism. So we see that on anion with tannins, right? Cations basically are physical foulants. And then in general for all resins is oil and greases. Mm -hmm. And in the case of oil and grease or even suspended solids, You know, it's basically like you're covering up the resin, right? Imagine you, and I hate using this analogy, but it's a good one. Mm -hmm. You know, what happens when you throw a sponge, a dry sponge into a bucket of water? It Mm -hmm. soaks the water right up, right? Mm -hmm. Now imagine if you put that sponge in a plastic bag and threw it in the water. What happens? (laughs) Yeah. Nothing,
0: floats around.
1: So oils and greases, physical fouling, things that will coat the resin bead, Will prevent ion exchange from occurring, just like it won't. A sponge won't suck up water if it's covered in a plastic bag,
2: yeah.
1: Because that's how ion exchange really works. The ion has to travel in, and the counter ion has to travel out. Right. So if we prevent that travel, nothing happens. Yeah. So these physical foulants can be a problem. T- so let's come back to iron. Do you yeah. have? T- we might have time for that. Yeah. I and, I,
0: and I call that the molecular Ziploc baggie.
1: <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yes, very much. Mm-hmm. So iron, when you're dealing with iron 2, which is ferrous iron, or what we call clear water iron, and it's coming out of a well and you're using a water softener to remove it, in that environment, when it's still in the clear water iron form, the resin treats it just like hardness. It'll remove the calcium magnesium along with that iron. The problem with fouling is with iron is during the regeneration process because that iron becomes not clear water iron anymore. It's now red water iron. It becomes that ferrous iron, Mm -hmm. right? It easily converts from iron two to iron three. Well, why? Well, when we regenerate a a softener, we're using brine, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that brine has been sitting in that room, in that area for several hours, if not days, if not weeks, prior to its use, there's plenty of oxygen. When you expose water to air, it comes to equilibrium with oxygen at a rate of about 8 to 10 parts per million, depending on the water temperature. Hmm. So when you go to regenerate that softener and there's oxygen present, as soon as that oxygen gets to that iron, it will convert it from iron 2 to iron 3. So if we don't control the regeneration frequency, or we don't maybe use some sort of additive to help prevent the fouling, right? You know all those things you can throw on your brine tank to help iron come through. Yeah. The whole point of those things is to help keep the iron from converting from iron two to iron three during regeneration, mm-hmm. or keeps it soluble so it passes it through. Right. right. Yeah. If you don't size your system softener properly, and you know this well is better than probably anyone if you don't size it properly and you get iron fouling during regenerate you know of your softener it always happens during the regeneration process it doesn't really happen during service it mainly happens during that regeneration okay it's good to know and that's where you get the fouling in the bead you know i'm sure you've seen the pictures of the cation resin looks like a little iron ball yeah yeah because it's so coated with iron but it's that regen process that is really causing the fouling. Yeah. And if you don't control it, you get leakage, you get bad, you know, iron passing through all the things we normally deal with every day.
0: Yep. Yep. And it's just, uh, you got to start looking at your regeneration process a little closer or yep. remove the foulants ahead of time.
1: Exactly. And a lot of guys use the, I mean, I remember the first method I was taught for iron control with softeners was the old compensated hardness method. Yep. And I was taught four times iron, And then add hardness grains of hardness to that number, and then do your math from there, right? Yeah. And uh, it's actually a very valid approach. Yeah. Some guys use three, some guys use five. Yeah, but if you do the math, like you get back to the real, you know, to the the egghead math, as I call it. Right. It's actually quite close to what the real math would be. (laughs) So, it's a solid method of approach. So if you're listening and and you use compensated hardness, I would say keep using it because uh, it'll yeah. help keep your softeners cleaner during regeneration.
0: yeah and so what Bill's saying is you know again, you have your hardness number in grains and then you add your iron in as a factor of four. So if it's two parts per million, you know for eight that would be as eight grains quote unquote as compensated. Right. And then you add it to your four, you got, well, 12 grains of compensated hardness to divide into your 30,000 grains or whatever you're using. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a fat factor on your uh, iron. You're really making it to where your softener is going to regenerate more often. And uh, yep,
1: the, it's a, Yeah, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of what that calculation is to yeah. get you to regenerate more
0: often. Yeah, and we could get into a lot of the. Uh, yeah, we go almost a whole podcast on that. Maybe that's yeah. another podcast Maybe, if you yeah. want to do Maybe it for sure. Right. I think we will. Um, so that's all great. That's good, good info. Uh, uh, aluminum sure. does too, right? Doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Add...
1: So you, there are other metals. Yeah. So things like aluminum. I mean, we deal with some barium fouling on the industrial side. Right. I mean, heck, even hardness can foul if you're doing DI and yeah, yeah. Those sulfuric acid involved. But uh, yeah. yes, things it's... like aluminum, lead. There are certain metals that just don't want to come off the resin. Yeah. So, or they accumulate on the resin and they just take out the resin the same way kind of we talk about iron. It tries to come off, but then it precipitates. That's really the mechanisms when we talk about metals reduction or metals in general, fouling ion exchange resins. Right, right. right. They so. change a the form and they no longer are soluble and they become insoluble.
0: Right. So, water softener was meant for hardness.
1: (laughs) Meant for (laughs) soluble ions that like to stay stay soluble. Stay soluble. There you go. Exactly.
0: We touched on this, and I think this is important with resin manufacturers and Mm -hmm. what you're paying for out there, everybody, and your quality of ion exchange. Where does the quality of ion exchange come into when the manufacturer... Is telling you one thing, but it may be another thing in the bag, and that is cross-linking, and sure. that's the structural structural building blocks, uh, polymer building blocks that that make up cation resin, and um, so you have what six percent, eight percent, ten percent, and then past ten percent for our listeners, that's that gets into a different realm. So, yeah. but what we use here is mostly eight and ten percent, but six percent. Mm-hmm on country water without any any chlorine oxidation whatsoever can work also. So what is crosslinking?
1: Well cross-linking, I think the I always like to use an, an analogy of a ladder. So think about a ladder. Let's say that ladder is 20 feet tall, mm-hmm. just for an example. Mm-hmm. And think of the sides of the ladder as the backbone where all the functional groups are that do all the work for you. Mm-hmm. And then the rungs are the crosslinking. So let's say you and I had a ladder that's 20 feet tall, but it only had 10 rungs on it. Mm -hmm. And then let's say we had a ladder that had same 20 foot that had 20 rungs on it Mm -hmm. and then a ladder with 30 and then 40 or 50, right? When we talk about the stability of that ladder, which one, which one would you think would be the most stable? Of course. Obviously the one that has the most amount of rungs. When a resin gets attacked, softening resin or cation resin gets attacked by oxidants, picture in your mind if the chlorine as a little hatchet. It's just hatching out the rungs as it goes, right? Mm-hmm. So the more rungs you have, the more attack it can take. Because even though, yeah, the resin may have lost some of its cross-linking or the latter lost some of its rungs, If you had enough rungs on it to start with, it can still stay stable for a long period of time, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the first thing, is that the higher the cross-linking the resin, the more chlorine-tolerant, I guess is the best way to put it, Mm -hmm. over a longer period of time. Just because the chlorine attacks the cross-linking, no matter how much is there to begin with. And your life of your resin will be dependent upon how much crosslinking you had to start with, right? So the higher the crosslinking, the longer the quote unquote resin will last in an you know with chlorine in the water, right? So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Crosslinking also comes into play in terms of selectivity, leakage, capacity, all of those factors that we look at when we're looking at applications. Now when you look at your typical home potable water application, you know, they're only trying to achieve, for the most part, one grain per gallon. Mm-hmm. So let's not forget one grain per gallon is 17 parts per million, or 17.1, mm-hmm. right? In most industrial or commercial applications, sometimes they want one part per million. Sometimes they want 0.1 part per million. Oh, yeah. So the lower you get in the terms of quality of water required, you know, that cross-linking becomes important because you got to be able to regenerate that resin with a certain amount of salt and concentration of said salt mm-hmm. in order to attain the water quality coming out the back end. So if I'm a, a situation where I want one part per million of hardness, I'm not going to throw a 6% resin in there because I know it's probably not going to hold up for very long. It might only last a year before it goes down, Right. right? But if I put a 10% in there, I'm probably going to get, you know, five plus euros out of that, you know, given whatever the environment is in terms of oxidation. Mm -hmm. So cross-linking not only is the strength of the bead from an oxidative perspective, it also dictates kind of the water quality and the capacity as a result that you'll get out of the resin for a longer period of time. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean that ladder and those are
1: kind of the two main things. But
0: ladder analogy makes makes a ton of sense. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's so visual. I I never used it. I just
1: Yeah, I I don't just something I uh, just something I kinda I'm I do not think I read it. I just kinda came up with it several years ago. It's just easy way to explain it.
0: Yeah. Well you can use my molecular ziploc baggy and I'm gonna I steal like that I'm, a lot, I'm, actually. I'm gonna steal your uh your ladder. Yeah, steal the ladder, <laughs> baby. No problems.
1: <laughs> there's no (laughs) copyright on
0: that no worries the um so that really that puts it a lot in perspective Mm -hmm. now this is the funny thing and we know this and and uh, i know you have a good product that is a black cation and we've us old well i'm a lot older but the guys (laughs) that have been around the Mac Daddy resin was the C two forty nine. back in
1: the old day. Yeah, C two forty nine. Back in the day. Yeah. when
0: they could use solvent, <laughs> when they could, they could cook the resin a little bit longer. It poured right out of the bag like water, and wow, you know Stan Zarkowski, God rest his soul, was that it was his his uh, vanity plate said C two forty nine. I think that beautiful was beautiful product. It was it was right made and right right down the street in New Jersey, and. Yes, uh, sir. And, uh, you know, and as corporate raiders came in and corporate raiders left, so did C249. And, yes, agreed. And Resin did see an opportunity there to make a uh, black cation. And right there in Camden, New Jersey, uh, in good old USA. And, but some people, they look at the blonde resin as it was bleached out, like, ah, you Great. know, it's blonde, it's no good. But it's really the cross linking. But, you know, the, Black versus blonde, can you just clear that up a little bit? And...
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, from a chemical perspective, you know, as long as the specs look good and compare, it doesn't matter what color the resin is. It really comes down to the capacity, the moisture content, and the crosslinking of the resin. So you can have a amber or black, and they could have the same chemical specs, and honestly, they'll do the exact same thing for you in your application, right? Mm-hmm. So color doesn't matter really where the color comes from on a black cation resin is just basically if like you you kinda alluded to it, like how did you cook it? Right? Mm-hmm. So when you when you sulfonate a bead, like if you actually look at the polymer used to make cation resin, it's actually this really snowy white looking mm-hmm. little itty bitty plastic bead. It's not black at all. It's not amber at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get its color until you sulfonate it. Mm-hmm. And the sulfonation process is what puts the functional groups there. So if you sulfonate at a, I'm just going to simplify this. If you sulfonate it at a higher temperature or longer, or like you said, cook it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really a a, a cooking uh, result. If you do it longer and Mm -hmm. hotter, it actually chars the bead surface. And that's what you see. You get a darker colored bead versus that light colored bead gotcha. and that's really the only difference in terms of how they're made it's mm-hmm. really a temperature and prolonged exposure difference mm-hmm. but spec wise as long as the specs match on paper or from analysis there is no difference between the two
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: and the but now that we're making black cation in new jersey we want it's, everybody it's to the, think it's black the best
0: <laughs> it's the best stuff in the bag absolutely and, but hey what about this some guys now this is kooky i think maybe would say as their resin becomes more bleached by chlorine or um, mm-hmm. oxidants that the black cat will actually start to turn blonde and then they it look, does yeah then they look in there and they say oh my resin shot because now we well, bleached the hell honestly, out of it honestly
1: that's a great indicator it's at least an indicator that if it was black and now it's amber or golden color like the normal color you're used to seeing it is a good Good indicator it's been exposed to chlorine for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Whether the resin shot, you know, analysis would only tell you that or, or something in the field. But I don't think that's a bad thing. If it's it's easier on them to service their, their client base or their customers and they want to save the trouble of rigmarole of a- analysis, mm-hmm. it's as good a way of looking at it as any, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: And you guys coming back around, you guys can analyze ion exchange oh, resin sure. for... Customers, uh, bona fide customers. It's not a charge, but if you do want to get into deep analyzing, there is a charge for it. But Resin Tech does have a, a one heck of a lab to tell you thumbs up or thumbs down on your resin, or as my brother would say, dominus biscus.
2: <laughs> right.
0: And uh, so, but yeah, yeah, and we, yeah, I have a couple more topics, but you know what, Bill, I'm thinking we're at our time, but okay, I'm thinking, you know, we have uh, just as uh, the Tickle you with a feather. The pH drop with anion resins—that's a big thing—and you do a good little blurb on that and how we can estimate the drop. I think we're going to circle back and do another pod on that one. Sounds good. And we'll maybe come back to the valence on the resin and some iron removal and little tips of what we've found over the years. That pH drop with anions—you know—we use them for nitrate removal. Some—I don't know if the PFOS we get. Too much of a uh, drop off of that?
1: Well, you can't. I mean, you will on the initial throughput if it's not buffered.
0: So it comes up to equal. I mean,
1: any anion that we're using in potable water, you're going to experience this pH drop. And whether it's virgin or uh, obviously on a regenerative, you know, regenerable application, you're always going to see a pH drop. You can try to control it. You can definitely calculate it and estimate it. You just got to work around it. You know, okay. actually at WQA this year, I'm doing the big show in Vegas. I'm doing, I'm not going to hit on it like specifically, but I'm going to be talking about anion effects and this was part of it was the pH drop. So
0: cool. Another reason to go to WQA. Uh, yeah, W2A. sorry. I
1: wasn't plugging myself. I was just mentioning if anybody's going to be there, they come to that, that presentation.
0: Yeah, I'll be there. I'm doing a commercial industrial thing. So yeah, it's kind of late for everybody to sign up to Vegas, but if you're around, you come on uh, the WTA.
1: Get out there, no problem. <laughs> that's,
0: that's right. Get on the, the flying city bus, you know, that's right. and uh, as I call it. But no, I mean this is this is great. I really really appreciate you giving us the time here, and we're going to hear from Bill again soon. And thanks for coming in. <laughs> there,
1: there. Thanks for inviting me I'm, I'm glad we were able to do this. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and uh, trust the frog, everybody. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye.